The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. Good evening. Welcome back. Good to see everybody. Looking forward to getting back in the book of Revelation with you. Turn there with me. Revelation chapter 2 tonight. Verses 1 through 7, we are blazing a trail through Revelation, already to chapter 2. Chapter 2. Hmm. Been looking forward to these studies each week. It's been a joy to dig into this book uh, and look forward to the many chapters we have in front of us. It's a blessing. So our text this evening, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, the title of our sermon, Truth Without Love. I'll read our text and then we'll pray and uh, consider this text together. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. This is the word of God, amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray, and we'll talk about our text together. Father in heaven, Lord, we are so grateful for your word, grateful for this revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Grateful, Lord, as the the capstone of Scripture, how you have revealed him to us uh, in this a great letter, Lord, and I pray as we um, consider these texts together that you'll help us by your spirit to understand. Uh, we, Lord, need your help. Uh, we need uh, the guidance, the illumination of your spirit. Uh, apart from you, Lord, we can't understand these things, wouldn't understand these things, wouldn't know how to apply these things, wouldn't know how to live according to these things. But uh, we know, Lord, you're gracious to us. When we come to you and ask for wisdom, you promise to give it liberally without reproach. And so we come to you now, Lord, asking for wisdom as we approach your word. Now, please help us. It's for your glory that we pray these things. It's for the sake of our great bridegroom uh, that we pray these things. Uh, Lord, I pray that through your word, um, you would uh, sanctify and purify your bride this evening. We love you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, the title of our sermon, Truth Without Love, Truth Without Love. Uh, This evening now is in our consideration of the revelation of Jesus Christ. We come to chapter 2, and the first of seven letters now written to the seven churches. So we looked at chapter 1 together in the book of Revelation. We looked at the prologue. In that prologue, we're introduced to John. We're introduced to the recipients of this letter. Uh, Most importantly, we're introduced to Jesus Christ, the risen and exalted Lord, the subject of the revelation. 
Uh, He is the one now, as we saw in chapter 1, he is the one who walks in the midst, walks amongst the seven lampstands. He's the one girded here like a kingly priest with the seven lights or the seven messengers, as it were, of the churches in his scepter hand, the two-edged sword of the word proceeding from out of his mouth and his countenance like the sun shining in its strength. All a, a beautiful picture of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then chapters 2 and chapter 3 then, uh, there are seven letters now that the Lord Jesus Christ writes or addresses to the seven churches. And he writes as one who walks among the lampstands. He writes as one who has been given all authority over the churches. He writes as one who's been given dominion over the churches. More specifically, more particularly, he writes as one who loves the church. Uh, These are those for whom he died. Uh, These are the churches, the ones for whom he shed his own blood, uh, and he cares for his church. So he writes to the church as his beloved people. And if you think about that with me, that's absolutely beautiful about the Lord Jesus Christ, right? This letter written in love for his people, care and concern for his people as they live in a life uh, full of tribulation and persecution and difficulty and adversity. He cares for his people and he cares for them in this age in particular as they sojourn on the earth from the time of his first coming until the time of his return. This present age is a period described in the Bible as a period of tribulation. And Paul says it is with much tribulation that we must, must enter the kingdom of God. And it's described as the kingdom, but as the, the patience or as the endurance of Jesus Christ. He writes to the church as she lives out her life and mission, bearing witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Uh, she as she lives out her mission, as it were, as lights that shine in a dark place. That's going to become very important as we consider this text this evening, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. He writes to her church, the church militant, as the church lives out her mission as lights shining in a dark place. Now, living out that mission, the churches are facing severe flipsis, facing severe tribulation, facing a weight of pressure. That's what that word means. Affliction, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual distress. And that distress, that tribulation coming from outside and coming from within the church, we consider that tribulation from the outside. It was um, was customary practice of the Roman Empire at the time uh, to encourage a conquered people to maintain their own religious practices uh, unless those religious practices were subversive or disruptive. So when the Roman Empire, when they conquered a people, uh, they would allow those people to worship according to their religious traditions as they saw fit, as long as those traditions were not considered subversive or disruptive. Well, Judaism had long enjoyed a status in the Roman Empire. That status was considered religio licita, a licit, licit religion, an acceptable religion, a permissible religion. Christianity, however, the end of the first century, was considered religio illicita. We understand what the word illicit means, right? That refers to that which is not legal, not acceptable, or not permissible. AD 49, the emperor Claudius expelled Jewish Christians from Rome. We know that from history. He, the Roman historian Suetonius uh, records the edict from Emperor Claudius as having said, he expelled from Rome the Jews constantly making disturbances at the instigation of Crestus. 
That's interesting. He's speaking to Jews, but specifically Jews who were disruptive at the instigation of one named Crestus. Crestus was a name you may have found about or around Roman slaves at the time, but certainly not a name that was found at all among the Jews. The Codex Sinaiticus referred to them as Christianos, Christianos, <laughs> Christians, Christians. Christians were blamed for the great fire in Rome in AD 64. From that day, that time period in the first century, even until our own day, of all the religions that are widely tolerated among the masses, even in our own day, right? Christianity seems to always be the one that is consistently religio illicita, uh, never accepted, uh, never acceptable, never permissible. Our government, the general population of our country trying to drive Christianity indoors, right? Trying to drive Christianity out of the public square altogether and underground. As long as you keep Christianity within the four walls of the church, or within the four walls of your house, you're okay, but as soon as you go outside with it, that's religio illicita, right? Including many professing Christians who act that way today. And for all of that, it seems most often, most severe tribulation or pressure, weight, comes from within the church. False teaching plagues the modern professing church. It is a blight on the modern professing church. Nominalism is everywhere. Easy believism, legalism, every ism, every ism that you can imagine. And the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ has to fight to, meet, to maintain purity, has to fight to remain pure. Some of the most severe assaults, some of the most devastating assaults, the most destructive assaults, the most difficult assaults, frankly, the most discouraging dis- assaults come from within our own camp so to speak, at the hands of those who should know better. And that's the environment, as it were, in which the church is growing up during this age of thlipsis, during this age of pressure, tribulation. Some standing strong for the faith faith in the midst of the pressure, the faithful facing persecution, others are not. To one degree or another, others given over to conflicts, given over to compromise, Here in these seven churches that begin the letters of Revelation, you have those that are faithful under persecution. You have those that are um, uh, not given to conflict or compromise. You have other churches given to compromise. Two of the churches here at the beginning of Revelation are ready to die, threatened with having their lampstand removed. And so we see a representation of the church at large uh, even here in the first century. As we have previously discerned, These seven churches are a small representation, if you will, of the whole. As the letters address specific concerns in the life and in the experience of an historical church in Asia, the letters are intended to have a greater reach. The letters intended to extend to or encompass the entirety of the Lord's church in the entirety of the age of the church, that time of tribulation between the first and second comings of Jesus Christ. It's during this time that the Lord writes to his beloved church, his bride, and he writes as one who dwells in the midst of the lampstands, loving her and caring for her until he returns for her. He begins this now along the male route, as it were. We talked about that in the introduction with the church at Ephesus in chapter two, verses one through seven. Ephesus was the capital of the Roman province of Asia at the time this letter was written. And Ephesus, at the time, a population of about 250,000 people, one of the largest, one of the most important cities in the empire. Um, Ephesus was on a really important uh, trade route. 
uh, and a really important port city, as it were, known for its wealth, known for its power. Most particularly, it was known for its paganism, known for its superstition. Ephesus was the home of the temple of Artemis, or the Roman goddess Diana, who was the goddess of fertility. And the temple of Artemis, one of the seven architectural wonders of the world, and also home to a thousand temple priestesses, otherwise known as temple prostitutes, uh, very superstitious, very pagan in its worship. Paul passed through Ephesus in Acts 18, leaving at the time Priscilla and Aquila there. Later, Apollos would minister there. Uh, Later, Timothy would minister there. Paul spent three years there. So this church has been blessed with good preaching and teaching. Uh, Paul comes back to minister there in Acts 19. And if we remember from Paul's address to the elders at Miletus, he warned them day and night with tears over the three years that he spent there about the savage wolves that would come in among the flock, uh, not sparing them, Acts chapter 20, verse 31. Under Paul's ministry in Ephesus, the manufacture and sale of pagan paraphernalia, in particular little idols, <laughs> dropped precipitously. Now that's awesome, right? That Paul, under the preaching of the gospel, can move into Ephesus, a pagan area, and at the, preach, the faithful preaching of the gospel among God's people, you have pagan idol makers going out of business. That's awesome, right? So because of that, though, they're about to run them out of town. Uh, They got angry with Paul. There arose a great commotion about the way. Acts 19, verse 23. Irate craftsmen, idol makers, stirred up a riot in Ephesus. Drug Paul, um, drug Sosthenes into the theater. That theater would hold about 24,000 people. Drug them into the theater. um, Essentially ran Paul out of town. Paul would describe his time in Ephesus uh, in his letters to the Corinthian church. He would describe his time in Ephesus as a fight with wild animals. Right? He was fighting with beasts in Ephesus, had many adversaries. Paul even spent time imprisoned in Ephesus. Many consider, uh, many scholars consider Ephesus to be the fourth Pentecost in the book of Acts. The book of Acts essentially recording the spread of the gospel and the spread of the church by consequence. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, where the disciples would be witnesses to Jesus Christ in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We see Pentecost in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. We see a Pentecost of sorts in Samaria in Acts chapter 8. We see another Pentecost, as it were, in Caesarea, the house of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. And then again, now in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. Ephesus at the time considered to be the very ends of the earth as far as the Roman Empire was concerned. So now at the end of the first century, you have a bustling New Testament church with a significant um, Christian heritage. Uh, And this New Testament church, if you can imagine with me for a minute, this New Testament church receiving a letter from Jesus Christ. Um, The risen Christ, the exalted Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ to the church at Ephesus. I don't know what to think about that, right? If, if someone showed up, well, for starters, if someone showed up here with a letter from Jesus Christ, we'd have to, in our day and age, think them to be nuts out of their mind. But this is from the Apostle John. The Apostle John, having written this down, delivered this letter to the church at Ephesus, a letter from the risen and exalted Christ. I imagine, I imagine, there's pretty good attendance on that day when that letter, when that letter was read in the church. Um, uh, amazing, right? Absolutely Amazing. 
Well, we would consider for a moment that this letter was written to be relevant to the needs of all seven of the churches, right? And that Jesus Christ is addressing seven churches in this letter. Uh, Seven times he addresses the churches. That letter was going to be read aloud in those churches as well. We realize that this letter has the broad scope that it does. Think with me, we need to make the connection. This letter has a broad scope to it. This letter was written to the church universal. It was intended for the church, church universal and is just as much for us today as it was for the church at Ephesus in the first century. The Lord Jesus Christ writes this letter to his beloved people, to his church. He writes this letter to you and I. In our own adversity, in our own difficulty, as the church militant, as we strive and labor, brothers and sisters, to live out our mission as lights in a dark place. And so he writes to comfort us, writes to encourage us, writes to correct us or rebuke us where that correction or rebuke is necessary, right? It's just as much for us. Now, the Lord, to begin in chapter 2, first addresses the recipient's or the recipient of this letter. Verse 1. Verse 1, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write. Now the word angel there in verse 1 literally refers to a messenger. To a messenger. So so what are we to make of this? Verse 1, and the recipient to the angel of the church of Ephesus. Some view the angelos, or the messenger, to be a guardian angel assigned to the church. Right, A specific angel assigned to the church. Others think of the messenger or the angel as the elder of the church. I'm going to submit to you that these churches had a plurality of elders. When Paul meets with the elders from Ephesus and Miletus, he meets with elders, plural. Okay, So not one specific elder or one specific pastor, as if this letter is written to the pastor of the church at Ephesus. The angel, the word angel there is singular. To the angel, singular, of the church at Ephesus, right. So I don't think that necessarily means it is written to the pastor of the church. The church at Ephesus had a plurality of elders. This is an angel singular, and it's an angel of the church as a whole, all right? So writing to the church as a whole through the instrumentality, if you will, through the means of this angel who would deliver this message. So the word for messenger, angelos, is used in various ways here. In the introduction, if you remember, The revelation of Jesus Christ, now think with me, the revelation of Jesus Christ is given by God to Christ himself. Jesus Christ himself then signifies the revelation to an angel, and the angel delivers it to John, who is to give it to his servants, all right, to show them things which must soon take place, okay? So the angel is simply a vehicle of revelation, an agent of revelation. The angel simply delivers that which is revealed, in that case in the introduction, to John, here in this case to the church at Ephesus, or through John to the church at Ephesus. So in chapter 1, verse 20, we asserted that the the seven stars in his scepter hand were the seven lights atop the seven lampstands, those who shine in the church, like those in Daniel who shine as stars in the firmament. Who did we say the seven stars were? We believe those who are, uh, are the seven stars are those who turn many to righteousness, right? Those messengers of the churches, specifically the seven lights 
of the seven lampstands who have the word of the gospel on their lips and preach the gospel, preach the word of God to the nations, those are the people of God. Uh, Those are you and I. We're messengers, as it were, to the nations. We're the ones who shine as lights in a dark place. So the seven stars are the messengers from the churches to the nations, referring to the people of God. So then, more than likely, and much like the reference to an angel or messenger in the introduction who gave this revelation to John, angels here are simply referring to a vehicle of communication. They bring the message, right? The messenger brings the message to John, John writes it down, and the message is delivered to the church at Ephesus, okay? There's simply here a heavenly being taking dictation, as it were, from Jesus Christ as he addresses each of these churches. The angel takes down the letter, reveals the content of that letter to John, who writes it down, and then sends it to the seven churches. The angel, if you will, it's it's interesting to think about this, the angel becomes a, a convergence, if you will, between earthly and heavenly realities. John is receiving a vision. That, re- that vision is being mediated to him by an angel sent from Jesus Christ himself. And John writes it down and sends it to the churches. There is a convergence, if you will, of earthly and heavenly realities. Even as we sit here today, brothers and sisters, right? There's a convergence of earthly physical reality and a convergence of of that with a spiritual reality as our worship joins together with the worship of those in heaven, Uh, as angels, an innumerable host of angels in heaven attend to the worship of God, right? There's a a convergence of earthly and heavenly realities. And I think the the messenger here, the angel in verse one, is an indication of that. It's an indication that it's not all physical. It's not just what we see with our eyes, but we're to fix our eyes on heavenly realities things unseen, right? So although it is to the angel who is the agent or the vehicle of communication here, it is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the one with all authority who addresses the church. The angel is merely a vehicle of of address or an agent of communication. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who's speaking to the church and he addresses the church with all authority. He's the one who holds in each one uh, in his uh, right hand, the seven stars He is the head of the church, the one to whom we must give an account. He's the one who walks in the midst of the lampstands. So as you think about our text then, the Lord now speaks directly to the lampstand that has been erected in Ephesus. So to the angel of the church at Ephesus, write, verse 2, I know your works. I know your labor. I know your patience. I know that you cannot bear those who are evil, And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. So the Lord begins his address to the church at Ephesus with a commendation. So we thank the Lord for that. Uh, And the members uh, of this church are commended in three ways. Can you imagine getting a letter of commendation for the Lord Jesus Christ Uh, The church at Ephesus is commended for their diligence, for their discernment, and for their determination, right? Discern or diligence, discernment, and determination. Now, first, notice that the Lord commends Ephesus for her diligence, chapter two, or verse two. He says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, or your endurance. He refers to their diligence again in chapter, uh, in verse three, noting how they have labored 
for his name's sake and have not become weary. In other words, this is a hardworking church. This is a hardworking church. This is not a sluggardly church. This is not a lazy church. This is not a church that shows up for a song and dance on Sunday morning and goes home the rest of the week. This is a church laboring, laboring, working to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I know. He's omniscient. He knows exactly what takes place in this church at Ephesus. He knows exactly what takes place in our church. He knows exactly what takes place in your home. He knows exactly what takes place in the the quietness of your study. He knows exactly what takes place in every square inch of your heart. He knows, right? He's omniscient. He says, I know your labor. I know your labor to grow in the word. I know how you serve me. I know what you've done as a church. But he also says, I know the inner workings of your heart. We live before him, quorum Deo, right? Before the gaze of God, before the eyes of God, before the gaze of him who knows all things. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The Lord says, I know your work. He says, I know the fruit of all your labors, right? I know your fruit. I know your labor. In other words, the hard work that is at the root of all those works. I know your work. I know your labor. I know your patience, your stick to <laughs> I know your steadfastness, your endurance through the difficulty of your work. I know that you are, as he might say to the church at Ephesus, that you are steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. I know your work, your labor, and your patience. I know that you are diligent. Secondly, the church is commended for her discernment, for her discernment. Look at verse two. I know your works, your labor, your patience. I know that you're diligent and you cannot bear those who are evil and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. That's a little unlike the church at Corinth, right? If we remember the church at Corinth. If you remember our, from our exposition of 2 Corinthians, we went through 2 Corinthians together. The churches would often have teachers come through. Teachers would come through boasting in their oration, their oratory skills. They would come through with their own letters of commendation. They would speak to groups in and around the churches, expecting to be paid for their expert speaking skills, right? Paul is addressing those in 2 Corinthians. And they would seek to lead astray disciples after themselves. In the case of 2 Corinthians, directly undermining the authority of the Apostle Paul himself, such that the Apostle Paul was forced to defend himself against their assaults. Undermining Paul, undermining the leaders of the church, undermining the church itself, wanting to have prominence for themselves. These teachers would sneak in, as it were, to the church, savage wolves. Well, unlike Corinth, Ephesus didn't have the same degree of difficulty with these liars and charlatans, these snake oil salesmen. The church at Ephesus tested them, (laughs) proved them to be liars. They could not, verse 2, they could not bear with those who are evil. In other words, uh, those who are evil didn't last long in the church at Ephesus, (laughs) Let them not last long among us either. Amen? Uh, They may brighten a room the sooner they leave it. (laughs) They put them to the test. Those who came in claiming some kind of authority for themselves, right? These uh, false teachers in Corinth 
um, refer to themselves as super apostles, right? Great apostles, super apostles. The church at Ephesus found them to be liars. So that's a, that's a good commendation, amen? Good commendation. The church at Ephesus knew the truth. They understood the truth. They tested that teaching against the truth, and they dispelled quickly with liars and charlatans, with snakes. In other words, the, tr- the, the church at Ephesus was valiant for truth. The church at Ephesus was zealous for truth. The church at Ephesus was well taught. And we know from the string of teachers that were at Ephesus, the church at Ephesus was well taught. They're not going to tolerate evil men or imposters. They're going to put self-proclaimed teachers, self-proclaimed apostles, are going to put them to the test. And by a zealous faithful commitment to the truth of God's word, they're going to prove them to be liars, prove them to be the liars that they are. So they were zealous in their work. They were diligent, zealous in their discernment. Third, the church at Ephesus is commended for her determination and her determination in these things. Verse three, in all of this, verse three, you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. The word for persevered here refers to bearing or carrying a load. Not wanting to put it down, but bearing the weight of it, carrying the weight of it along. They endured, they persevered under the weight. You could say they persevered under the flipsis, the pressure. Persevered under the weight of that tribulation. They have picked up, and they have borne the weight of the truth on their shoulders, as is right that they should do, as the pillar and ground of the truth. Amen? They've been unwaveringly determined to uphold the truth. They are steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, always abounding in the truth of God's word. They are zealous for the sake of the Lord's name, and they have not become weary. They have continued steadfast in the work. In Acts chapter 20, verse 32, Paul commends the church at Ephesus to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build them up. He says to give them an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He charges them, commends them to the word of God, commends them to the truth. And over the last 40 years now, since that meeting with the elders of Ephesus at Miletus, Over the last 40 years, until the time now that John is writing to them, the Lord Jesus Christ is addressing this church, um, they've remained faithful to the word of God to which they were commended. Paul says, I commend you to the word of his grace, and this church has been a faithful church. They've stood up to those who are liars. They've stood up to error. They've stood up to those who would uh, come in among them, seek to lead away disciples after themselves. They have labored for the truth. They have been zealous for the truth. They want to know the truth. They want to understand the truth. They want to preach the truth. We labor for his name's sake. We might say, well, that sounds great. (laughs) And if that were where the letter ends, uh, we'd be excited about that, thrilled, thrilled with that commendation from the Lord. However, as Paul told the Corinthians, listen, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy, though I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, 
though I have the truth, right? Though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. What is this church without love? It's nothing. For all their labor, for all their effort, for all their striving, for all their work, for all their zeal for truth, for all their understanding, for all the good teaching, for all, for all that this church is and has been and has done, if this church is without love, what does Paul say? They're nothing. They've got all that, but they have not love. They have nothing. So the Lord turns to the church at Ephesus with these words of reproof in verse 4. Nevertheless, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. I don't know about you, but the times that I've read this text many times uh, before, easy to read through that and not consider the, the stunning rebuke that that is, right? The striking rebuke that that is. Of all that you've done for my name, the Lord says, I have present active indicative. I have at this time, I have something against you. You have left. You've already left. It's an arrest. Means that it's happened, something that has already happened, and the effects of that departure, the effects of having left are currently polluting and corrupting your present relationship to me. You have left your first love. For all of your diligent work, for all your effort, your determination to remain steadfast, your commitment to the uncompromised truth of God's word, you have left. You have departed. You've forsaken your first love. Now, there are three primary options for what the Lord is referring to here. It's important we understand what he's referring to. One option is this. They've left a love for Jesus Christ himself. They love the truth. They just don't love Jesus Christ, the one who's given us the truth, the one who is truth, right? Secondly, they have left or forsaken their love for one another or love for their neighbor. The Lord says you'll know that you are, they will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Maybe they've left their love for one another, left off love for their neighbor. They are content holding the truth to themselves and no longer love one another or love their neighbor. Third, maybe they have forsaken love for the truth itself. They've been zealous for truth. They know the truth, but do not love the truth. Listen to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. Listen. Then the lawless one, this is speaking of the end times, right? The lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. Why did they perish? Because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, for this reason, God will send them strong delusion such that they will believe the lie. It's an example of Lex Talionis, uh, biblical justice. We'll talk about that more in a moment. 
because they did not receive the love of the truth, God sends them strong delusion so that they would be given over to the lie. That's their judgment, that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Not to love the truth is not to believe the truth. Not to love the truth is to take pleasure in unrighteousness. Do you see? There is a sense, there is a sense in which all three of these may refer to what Jesus Christ is speaking of. It may refer to our love for Jesus Christ preeminently. Because if we don't love him, we don't love the truth. We don't love our neighbor, right? So it may be that all three of these are considered here. However, I think the answer, the answer is most likely to be found in the nature of their discipline. Now think with me. Most likely the answer is found in the nature of their discipline. Verse 5. The Lord says, now think with me. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Unless they repent, do the first works and renew their love, their first love, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to remove their lampstand. Now there's a sense here of Lex Talionis again, a biblical justice, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? Justice that suits, that adequately, biblically suits the crime. Justice that suits specifically the crime that's been committed. There's a sense of Lex Talionis and the judgments that are associated with the Lord's rebuke. The discipline of the Lord in these letters fits the sin, as it were. Consider with me the church at Pergamos. The church at Pergamos. In the church at Pergamos, uh, verse 16, uh, they have the sin, the Lord has this against them, they have the sin of tolerating false doctrine. Their discipline is seen in verse 16. The Lord says, repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. What is the sword of his mouth? Truth. Truth, the sword of the spirit. One edge cutting with judgment, the other edge cutting with salvation, right? The truth, they tolerate false doctrine. Jesus Christ threatens them, as it were, with the sword of his mouth, with truth. Error is met with truth. Consider the church for another example. We'll see these as we work through the letters. Consider the church at Sardis, chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord charges them with not being watchful, verse 2. And if they will not watch, he will come upon them as a thief, verse 3. In other words, if they do not repent and be watchful and be vigilant, he's going to come upon them as a thief. The church at Philadelphia Because you have kept my command, the Lord says in commendation, I will keep you from the hour of trial. Do you see how discipline suits the sin or the commendation, the reward suits the commendation, right? It's it's an example of lex talionis. Consider the lukewarm church at Laodicea. Because you say you are rich and have need of nothing, verse 17, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. You need, right? You have great need. You think you're rich and have need of nothing, Lord Jesus Christ says, you don't realize that you are poor, miserable, blind, and naked, right? So now think with me, back to the church at Ephesus. Back to the church at Ephesus, verse five. The church at Ephesus has forsaken her first love. 
Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. The Lord says in verse 5, his discipline of this sinning church is that he will remove their lampstand. He's going to remove their light. Remove their light from its place. Now this would seem to imply then, considering the Lord's discipline, that this church has not been shining as a light. That makes sense? Lex Talionis, the discipline of the Lord. This church doesn't appear to have been shining as a light in a dark place. They may be zealous for the truth, but it appears as though they are no longer zealous with the truth. Make sense? If you aren't going to carry your light into this dark world, the Lord says, then I'm going to turn off your light for good. Do you see? Lex Talionis, the discipline of the Lord. They're hoarding the truth for themselves, but they aren't shining as a light. That shining as a light is an expression of love for the Lord Jesus Christ. What are we commissioned to do? What are we commissioned to do? We are commissioned to be witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ in a dark world. We're to be lights in a dark place, shining in a dark place. We're to preach the gospel to the nations that the gospel might, (laughs) through the gospel, Jesus Christ might gather to himself all those who are his. Great love for our neighbor, great love for one another, or even great love for the truth, they're hoarding this to themselves. You see, it's love that sets truth ablaze atop the lampstand. Love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Love for the Lord Jesus Christ sets your light ablaze, doesn't it? Love for the lost, concern for the lost, sets your light ablaze on top of the lampstand. It's a lack of love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Frankly, it's a fear of man that would promote or provoke many to hide their light under a bushel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? We cannot simply love the commandment. The greatest commandment is that we shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The Lord said to the Pharisees in Luke chapter 11, verse 42, he says, woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. You can have such zeal for the word as the Pharisees did and yet not love God, you see? Such zeal for truth, which expresses, should express itself in love for God, should express itself in love for others. You can have such zeal for truth and yet be devoid of any love for Jesus Christ or devoid, devoid of any true love for God. I would submit to you here, and again, thinking along the lines of Lex Talionis, I would submit to you that Ephesus loved the truth, but they no longer loved the one who is the truth. They've left their first love. As such, they were no longer lights atop the lampstand. Their evangelistic fervor dried up. Their gospel-preaching zeal 
dried up. They're no longer accomplishing their mission in this dark world for Jesus Christ. They're no longer a testimony, right? It might even seem foreign to those in Ephesus that John is exiled on the island of Patmos for the testimony of God and for the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't John say, right? Zealous for the truth, but no longer zealous with the truth. This church has lost their evangelistic zeal. There were no longer witnesses for him, no longer accomplishing the mission to which God had called them to shine as lights in this dark world for Jesus Christ, which is connected to, married to, love for him, love for Jesus Christ. You remember when you were first converted, right? When you first came to an understanding of what Jesus Christ has done for you, what was the overflow of that heart? Now tell somebody else about it. (laughs) Tell somebody else about it. Look at what the Lord has done for me, right? Look at the salvation to which I've been delivered, what the Lord has done for sinners. Turn from your sin and trust Christ. He'll forgive you of all your sin. He'll seat you in the heavenlies. He'll make you sons and daughters in the kingdom, right? Glory. Matthew chapter 24, verse 12, listen. They will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Then many will be offended, will betray one another, will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Endures how? Endures in that love. That even in the midst of tribulation, even in the midst of persecution, in the midst of the fact that you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake, where many are offended, where many will betray one another, where many will hate one another, he who endures through that adversity, through that persecution, through that flipsis, through that pressure, through that weight, as one faithful to proclaim the gospel, as a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ, as one who is faithful to shine as a light atop the lampstand, the one who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. In other words, as you and I fulfill our mission, the mission that we've been given in this world to shine as lights in a dark place, as we fulfill our mission, the gospel of the kingdom is preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. That gospel preaching happens through you and I. It's just apparent that it's not happening through the church at Ephesus. Do you see? And so what does Jesus Christ do? If you're not gonna shine as a light, I'm gonna turn your light off for good. I'm gonna remove your lampstand. You see, it's an example, like the other churches, it's an example of Lex Talionis. We are responsible not merely to know the truth. We're responsible not merely to teach the truth in the four walls of this building. We're not responsible merely to speak of the truth to one another as edifying as that is, as helpful as that is. We're not merely called to understand the truth. But we are responsible for what we do with the truth. How we live and how we apply the truth. And there is, listen, there is no greater expression of our love for Jesus Christ. There's no greater expression of our love for his word. No greater expression of our faith in Jesus Christ, our faith in his word, than when we are witnesses to him in this dark and dying world. 
To fail to shine the light is to give evidence. Do you see? To fail in that is to give evidence that we are more concerned about something else. More concerned about my own personal reputation. More concerned about my own safety, maybe. More concerned about what someone else thinks of me. More concerned about my own fear or my own shortcomings more concerned about my comfort, uh, more concerned about my leisure, my ease, whatever it is, to fail to shine the light in the way that we've been called to gives evidence, is to give evidence that we do not love the Lord as we should, that there's a problem within our own heart, that we do not love our neighbor as we should. What is the most loving thing that you can do for someone to preach the gospel to them? The most loving thing that you can do is to preach the gospel to them. The Lord says, verse 5, he says to them, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works. We're going to talk about this more next week. I think it's fascinating that um, the Lord Jesus Christ here mentions first works. What was the first work that Paul did when he entered Ephesus? He went into the synagogue and preached the gospel. What was the first work that Paul did wherever he, wherever he went? He went into the synagogue on the Lord's Day and he preached the gospel. He preached the gospel until they kicked him out of that place and then he went somewhere else and preached the gospel. Right? He would preach the gospel to people that he came in, in contact with until they ran him off and he'd go preach the gospel to, to other people. Right? Until that church was planted. And wherever that church was planted, what did that church do? That church went out into the community, into the highways and in the hedges. And what did they do? They preached the gospel. They preached the gospel in Ephesus to the point that it stirred up a riot. <laughs> stirred up a riot. They preached the gospel. The first works. It's the first thing that we do when we establish a church, as it were, a missions outpost uh, for the kingdom of God. We go and we preach the gospel. If you don't preach the gospel, you don't have anybody in your church, do you? We're, we're commanded by God to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing those disciples, teaching them to observe all things, Jesus Christ says, remember from where you've fallen. Repent, repent, turn from sin. Turn from disobedience. It is sinful, it is disobedient to neglect or to disobey the great commission of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a sin not to preach the gospel. You have to determine, you know, and it, it, it's, um, it's clear in the word of God. The Bible says we're to go and preach the gospel to every creature. You know your circumstances, you know, as well as I do, when I fail to do that, when I should have preached the gospel to somebody and I didn't because I had some, I've messed up priorities, right? I don't have time. I'm inconvenienced. I've got somewhere to go. I've got something else to do. Whatever the case may be, right? And with a clear conscience before God, you have to determine that for yourself. We're to preach the gospel. We're to have the gospel on our lips. We're to talk to lost people with the gospel. Jesus Christ says, remember from where you have fallen. Repent. Turn from sin and do the first works, or else, or else. Lord Jesus Christ is serious, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That's a warning to the church. It's a warning to the church at Ephesus who has departed her first love, who has forsaken her first love, who has a zeal for truth, but not according to love, 
And it's a warning to us, brothers and sisters, that that sin not be named among us. Let us be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ in the preaching of the gospel. I think it is um, astounding, like glorious, wonderful to receive such a commendation from the Lord Jesus Christ in the first half of this letter. That is just, uh, what an awesome encouragement, right? Absolute rocket fuel to our Christian lives to receive such a commendation like that from the Lord Jesus Christ. But then comes the warning, right? So there is much, brothers and sisters, to be commended for here, right? The Lord has been so gracious to us, so kind to us. We have so much here to be thankful for. But what we cannot do, what we must not do is to be thankful for those things and revel in those things and praise God for those things and leave off being a witness for Jesus Christ. Leave off our great commission, which is shining as lights in this dark world and fulfill the great commission for which Jesus Christ has called us to by shining as light, not to hide our, lamps, our lights under a bushel, but to put them atop a lampstand and to shine for him, amen? And I pray um, our commendation, brothers and sisters, will come in eternity. The Lord knows our work. The Lord knows our labor. He's not unjust to forget our labor for him. And the time will come when we'll be in eternity and we'll hear commendation from the Lord, well done, good and faithful servant. That time is not now. The time now is for us to work, for us to labor. And let's do that with joy. Our consider your love for Jesus Christ when the temptation comes to forsake preaching him to someone. Uh, consider what our love for Jesus Christ should encourage us to do, to be bold witnesses who do not shrink back. Let's preach the gospel for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ and that he might receive the full reward of his suffering. Amen? Amen. Amen. Pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, Lord, we grateful to you that uh, through these letters to the churches, uh, you reveal your heart, your mind to us on the pages of scripture. And through even this very, uh, this kind, compassionate commendation, we take great encouragement. Uh, we see so many of those gifts and graces among us here, a work of your spirit among us. And Lord, we want to concern ourselves as well with the stern, um, the striking rebuke that we see here of this church at Ephesus for having departed our first love and your command that they should repent and do the first works. And Lord, we want to, we want to understand what it is that you're um, revealing here, what it is that you're commanding. And Lord, we want to be faithful to you in what you're calling us to be faithful in and learn from this example. We know that these things were given for our admonition. I pray, Lord, that we would take them to heart, that we would consider how our love for you should overwhelm any fear of our own, should overwhelm any, um, should, should, shine brighter than any other uh, priority we might have in our lives to the point where you've said if we love mother or brother or sister more than you we're not worthy of you if we're ashamed of you or your words in this wicked and perverse generation of us you'll be ashamed uh, help us lord to consider uh, our love for you and in love to you lord i pray that you would cause us with fervency and zeal with great affection with great desire with great gratitude, you would cause us to shine brightly as lights atop a lampstand in this dark world for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that our love for you is evidenced as we are witnesses for you and to you 
in this dark world. And I pray for the glory of your name and not for our own aggrandizement or not for some pat on the back that we're certainly not worthy or deserving of, but for the greatness and for the glory of your name, that you would save many um, for your everlasting praise and worship. May you receive the full reward of your suffering. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.